2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we receive this word that which is the word of the Lord, that your spirit would be powerfully at work in us, illumining our minds, turning on the lights in our dark minds so we understand the truth of the word. So the head of the church, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted in his word, so that his people, his body, this church would be encouraged and edified and built up, that we might suffer for the salvation of of others and for the glory of God, seeking an eternal reward, that we might be willing and able and committed to making Christ known whatever the cost. We pray that you would help us to understand this letter to the church of Corinth, superintended by your spirit at the hand of the apostle Paul, for the sake of your church, not only then, but in all ages, as you speak to us today through your word, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have heard of Wayne and Gail Chen. Some of you have not heard of Wayne and Gail Chen, but I want to tell you who they are briefly. Wayne and Gail Chen um, were part of the missionary team to the BM people. We as a church have supported Brandon and Rachel Buser, who went and planted a church on this tiny volcano um, among the BM people. Some of their teammates, one of the couples who went with them, were Wayne and Gail Chen and their two daughters who were in um, their early teens. Wayne and Gail are from Taiwan originally. Uh, They now live in Taiwan again since they've completed the vast majority of the work among the BM. Wayne was brought on at Radius International as the director of Radius Asia. And if you're not sure what Radius is because you're a visitor today, Radius International is an organization that was started in part by this church. Uh, for the purpose of training um, missionaries to go to the most difficult places on earth and plant churches among peoples 
who've never in their history heard the name of Jesus. To plant churches there, make Jesus known, translate the Bible, etc. We've been deeply committed to that and have sent our people to various people groups as well. But Wayne is now directing Radius Asia, which is going to be training the Mandarin Chinese-speaking church. So the Radius that we had started before was training English-speaking missionaries who want to go among unreached people groups and learn those languages, etc. Now we're starting Radius Asia, where Wayne and Gail are in leadership for the purpose of training missionaries who are Mandarin Chinese-speaking missionaries who will then go learn new languages and plant churches as well from the church in China. Well, several months before the BM team were to present the gospel to the BM people for the first time in history, the Chens had returned home for furlough and received news that Gail had cancer. Gail had to undergo surgery in Taiwan uh, for a mastectomy, and then Gail had to begin chemotherapy and radiation. As the day approached for the team to return to BM and begin presenting the gospel to the BM people, Wayne and Gail had determined that if treatments were going well, they would return to BM. Initially, though, because the treatments, though going well, needed to continue on, Gail wanted Wayne there to make sure that the gospel was clearly preached to the BM people And so she urged him to go ahead without her. She would stay home in Taiwan and go through cancer treatment and send her husband to the BM people to make the gospel known to them. So he went. Not a a few eyebrows were raised at that decision on their part. But Gail was convinced that the salvation of the BM people was more important than her own life and comfort. So Wayne went. He went on two or three different occasions. Eventually, um, Gail was well enough to join him in the field, and they were in the field there for five years together. Um, The church was planted. It was matured. They're now finishing the Bible translation. As Wayne and Gail were coming there, and particularly Wayne, while his wife was in Taiwan ill with cancer, one of the BM tribe members who had not yet heard the gospel because the gospel presentation, which takes multiple months for them, had not yet been presented, said to Wayne, I have no idea what you guys, you missionaries, are going to tell me, but it must be pretty important because you guys are still coming back even with this illness. By the grace of God, that treatment was successful. They were able to spend five years there. At the end of that time, They returned home to learn the news that Gail's cancer had become stage four terminal, spreading into her bones from her skull to her pelvis. So what do they do with that news? That's news they received with the daughters who were about 11 and 12, 11 and 13. What do they do? On learning that news, they committed to starting Radius Asia. To train the Mandarin Chinese-speaking church to plant churches among unreached peoples. So Wayne and Gail are getting her treated for cancer, still, parenting their two daughters, and diligently working for the beginning of the first class of Radius Asia, which starts um, in just about a month. The Chens want to use, and they, I've heard them say this, Any time that Gail has left, seeing the gospel go forth to the nations. What drives missionaries like that? What drives missionaries like that to use every breath for gospel mission? What drove a man like William Tyndale to endure being hunted and burned at the stake so that there might be a Bible translation for English-speaking peoples. If I drop back further in history, all the way to the first and second century, what drove a man like Ignatius of Antioch, a pastor who himself was trained by the apostles, no less, 
to suffer and die at the hands of Rome. Listen to what Ignatius said as a believer. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. See, I want to answer that question, what drives these kinds of missionaries and pastors, these kinds of Christian people? What drives them to be committed in such a way? And I want to answer that question by by looking at the Apostle Paul, if you will, the, the missionary par excellence. What drove the Apostle Paul to be a man who was committed to suffering for the sake of gospel mission? And as I do look at, as we look at Paul together, really, in the text, I want to address three reasons why Paul was committed to suffering for gospel mission and why we ought to be as the church. Because when one member of the body, the whole body suffers, the whole body suffers. So as we, as the church, why we ought to be committed to suffering for gospel mission and ministry. Here are the three reasons I'm going to give you um, this morning as we walk through the text. Um, first, missionary suffering is for the salvation of others. You're motivated toward missionary suffering as a missionary for the salvation of others. We'll look at that in verses 7, really through 12. Second, missionary suffering is motivated by the glory of God. I want God to be glorified. We'll look at that in verses, really, 13 through 15. And then third, missionary suffering is for the promise of eternal rewards. We're seeking the reward or the eternal weight of glory. We'll look at that in verses 16 through 18. So let's look at our first point today. Missionary suffering is for the salvation of others. Now when I say missionary suffering is for the salvation of others, listen, I can apply that to ministry suffering. I can apply that to you suffering at work when you open your mouth about the gospel and others ridicule you. But I'm putting it in missionary suffering here specifically because of the nature of this series on missions. But listen, this is true for any believer who's on mission, making Christ known, and suffering in any way for the sake of making Christ known. But it's particularly, perhaps, especially true, uniquely true, for those we send to the most difficult places on earth to make the gospel known. For we know that their task is more difficult than our own. So missionary suffering is for the salvation of others. And when I say that, I'm really saying that missionary suffering has an ecclesiological purpose. Now, that word ecclesiological is a way to to say the church, the ecclesia, the the church, the called out ones. It has an an ecclesiastical or an ecclesiological purpose. It's, It's for the purpose of the church. You might wonder why I place the idea of the salvation of others under the notion of the church. That's precisely because in saving people, Christ is gathering his church. He's building his church. Saving the church and building the church is Christ's mission. That's his goal. The goal of missions is to see Christ's church gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation. And to the end of seeing others saved, we want to see Christ's church gathered and built. And to that end, the missionary is happy to suffer. When we send missionaries or raise up pastors, we do so knowing that the church is not only the goal, please hear this, the church is not only the goal of missions, but the church is the means that the Lord uses For gathering. He uses the church as the means for missions. But what what kind of means are we? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. What sort of means is the church? Our pastors, our missionaries, even the most heroic of missionaries. And I want to make this really clear because when we read stories about missionaries, I know living missionaries whom we can write biographies on who we'll all read one day 
I, I have the privilege of being close friends with some of those folks, the kind of folks, you know, you read books on and go, wow, okay? And you think, I could never live a life like that. And I just want to say to you, I know them, you could, okay? When we tell these biographies, we typically tell them in a kind of hagiographical kind of way. In other words, hagiography, it's like the study of saints. Um, we, we leave out the fact that they're weak, sometimes to our detriment in understanding that missions is, is the church is God's means in missions, and the church is weak. Look, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure... That's this new covenant gospel treasure in jars of clay. In other words, just clay pots, the kind of things you collect refuse in. We have it in jars of clay, ordinary, breakable, weak clay pots. The treasure is the gospel. The clay pots are the missionaries, the pastors, the people in the church. We're the clay pots. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, what he's saying is this. We are the instrumental means. The instrumental means. What do I mean by instrumental means? That sounds like a fancy term, but I want to break it down for you this morning. Um, There was a guitar and a piano used this morning in musical worship. The instrument that they used the guitar and the piano, is not the power behind the creation of that music. The musician is the power behind the creation of that music. The instrument is the tool the musician chooses to play to create that music. The musician could have used any number of instruments. I don't know if Jordan can use any number of instruments. Um... Maybe Tim can. I'm not sure. But I can use zero number of instruments, just so you know. But the church is the instrument that God chose to use. God's Spirit is the power, the effectual means. God's Spirit is the one who saves people. We are the instrumental means. We're what God is using to save people, but we are not the power for their salvation. And as the instrumental means, it is normative to suffer in gospel ministry. Normal. Our Lord suffered in his mission. He suffered in his mission. And with him, his missionaries and ministers often suffer in like manner. Look at verse 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, our mortal bodies, or our mortal flesh. Now, I want to connect 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10 because 4, 8 through 10 are a continuation of the thought begun in 4, 7. In fact, the verb where it says we are afflicted, that verb is being borrowed from verse 7. It's being inferred from verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. There is no verb in verse 8 through 10 that's controlling the thought of this. The only verb controlling the thought of this ultimately is the verb in verse 7. As jars of clay in whom this treasure of the gospel is, as those kinds of jars of clay, we are weak, powerless, fragile vessels. And as we carry the gospel forward and suffer doing so, we become acutely aware of our weakness. We become acutely aware that we are, in fact, jars of clay. And notice how Paul uses all these contrasting words. There's a treasure in a jar of clay. The surpassing power belongs to God, but not to us. Look at the next contrast. We're afflicted, 
in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. You hear the contrast over and over. He has these contrasting pairs all the way through verse 18, which we'll look at. But he says, we're afflicted, the first contrasting pair. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And this word afflicted is the idea of we're, we're narrowed in and confined. If you have claustrophobia, you know what this is like. Okay? Narrowed in and confined. We're pressured heavily into a confined place or path, like the crowds. Like, you know, if you're at Disneyland on a big day, and you just can't hardly move. You're just narrowed in and confined, right? It's, it's like you're, if you will, crowded in by suffering and affliction. And you just, you just can't find your way through. Trapped feeling. That's what he's saying. We're afflicted in every way. We feel crushed in and trapped in some way. But not crushed. But not crushed. How can he say we're not crushed in that situation? For the gospel is the power of God. For salvation. I don't know how I'm going to make my way through this. But I know the God who's going to carry me through. I don't know how, as a weak earthen vessel, I can do anything about my suffering circumstances or the condition of the hearts of these Corinthians. But I know the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I know that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So I'm not crushed. So while we have no resources to figure out how to work our way through this crowd of affliction pressing in on us, we know that God is still powerfully working through the proclamation of the gospel. Notice the next pair. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. It's, it's, uh, this word for perplexed is, is a Greek word that's like we, we're in a confused state of mind, at a loss, in doubt. We're uncertain. We're without resources in how to even handle this or think about this. We're depressed. You guys know what depression looks like? Some of you better than others. Feeling boxed in and at a loss and confused and having no idea how to handle what's coming at you. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We've lost everything, is what he's saying. But we know that we are not ultimately losers. For the gospel remains the power of God for salvation. We are, look at the next pair, persecuted, but not forsaken. This word persecuted is the idea that you're being hunted. You're being chased down. Pursued for ill intent. We're being persecuted, chased down, but not forsaken, not abandoned, not left behind or deserted. The Lord is with us, is what he's saying. We know that while we're being chased down and hunted and pursued, that the Lord is with us. We've not been abandoned, and Christ's people are with us. Look at the next pair. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down is, is to be knocked to the ground or, or to be thrown down with force. It's like someone picks you up and throws you to the ground, like in a fight being knocked on your backside. To be flat on your back, really in a fairly helpless and apparently defeated state. We've been knocked on our backs, but look at his next phrase. But not destroyed. Not destroyed. Here's what Paul's saying. He was close to death numerous times, but the Lord continued to deliver his life. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Keep your hand in 2 Corinthians 4 and just go back to chapter 1. Look at how he speaks to this. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength 
that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And he goes on to say, you must help us by prayer. Look, though he was close to death, the Lord continued to give him life and to give life to others through him, through his preaching. Listen, even when we arrive at the point of suffering, that we are completely beaten down, weak, and near death, we go forward in gospel ministry because we know that God is the one with surpassing power. We know that God is the one who raises the dead. And we look to him. Notice how Paul goes on to articulate the state of suffering for the gospel in verses 10 and 11. Look what he says. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We're carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus. As we're given over to death. What he's talking about here is real physical suffering. We're given over to it. And it's in our suffering for the gospel that the gospel's going forth. That's what he's saying. As Christ's mission of redemption was accomplished through Christ's suffering on the cross, so Christ's mission of applying that redemption to his people is accomplished through the suffering of his ministers and missionaries. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh... In my body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. See, it, it is as we keep preaching the gospel in the midst of suffering and personal weakness and as men are being saved and converting to Christ, that it is demonstrated through us and in us that Christ is alive and at the right hand of the Father. For nothing else explains what you're seeing than the resurrection of the Lord. It is because he resurrected and poured out his spirit that you are seeing and hearing all this. That's what Paul's saying. Look at verse 12 again, or for the first time actually. So death... Is it work in us, but life in you? Notice again the contrast. Death's at work in us, but life's at work in you. When Paul says death is at work in us, he's not just speaking of internal suffering and anxiety, though internal suffering and anxiety is included. He's also speaking about physical and external persecution. It's not just a psychological state he's talking about. It's also a physical state he's talking about. Death is at work in him. You can see on his body the death of Jesus because of the marks from his persecution he suffered. It's visible. It likely contributes to why Paul's unpleasant to look at. He's been beaten and whipped and jailed and shipwrecked so often, coming within an inch of his life, that he physically bears the marks of persecution in a way that you see the death of Jesus in his life. This was immensely difficult suffering for Paul. Please don't think it wasn't difficult for him. It was immensely difficult for him. Yet he kept at it. Kept at it. Why? Why does Paul keep at it? So that they may have life. So that they may have life. 
He will die. He says actually in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I think, I die every day. He will die every day for them that they might be saved. So Paul is willing to suffer as a gospel minister and missionary for the salvation of the church. Listen how Charles Hodge addressed this. The treasure of the gospel was committed not to an angel, but to Paul, an earthly vessel, and he was pressed, persecuted, cast down, and beset with deadly perils in order that his preservation, his wonderful efficiency and astonishing success should be a constant proof that Jesus lives and not only exercises a providential care over his servants, delivering them out of all their perils, but also attends their labors with his own divine efficiency or power. Paul's deliverances and the effects of his preaching made it manifest that Jesus lives. See, that's Paul's ecclesiological purpose, his purpose in gathering the church. The church is the means, and they sent Paul as a missionary to accomplish the end of gathering the church. Church at Antioch in Acts 13 sent him specifically. So the first reason that we suffer for missions is for the salvation of others, so that others might be saved. Second, let's turn to the second reason. Missionary suffering is for the glory of God. So missionary suffering is for the salvation of others. Missionary suffering is for the glory of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak. Now, I believe Paul's reference here to the Spirit when he says, since we have the same Spirit of faith, ought to be capitalized because I think he's referring to the Spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit who gives the gift of faith. He gave gave faith to us just as he gave faith to the psalmist, King David. He is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was at work in the life of King David, strengthening him. And so in Psalm 116, which is quoted here in 2 Corinthians For David is singing in Psalm 116 in the midst of much personal affliction. He's being afflicted, suffering, being chased down, and he's singing. And the Spirit gave David the faith in the midst of affliction to believe in his heart and to confess with his mouth that he trusts trusts the Lord. And just as the Spirit gave David faith that believes in the heart and confesses with the mouth, even in the midst of much affliction. So he gave us the same faith to believe and so to speak. He gave it to us as well. That's what Paul's saying. Man only believes and confesses Christ as Lord by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3. But please hear this. Spirit-given faith does not just believe something privately. Keep that in mind. Spirit-given faith does not just believe something privately. Spirit-given faith confesses Christ publicly. Publicly. That's what he's saying. We believe. Notice what he says. Verse 13. We also believe, and so we also speak. In this sense, the whole church is engaged in mission. Now, Paul's talking about his apostolic band, if you will, here. But the fact is, this comes over to us. We're all engaged in mission because we've been given spirit-given faith in Christ, and so we believe, and so we also speak. We confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Publicly. We're engaged in mission from the moment that our faith goes public at baptism and we profess Jesus as Lord throughout the whole of our lives, the moment you approach the waters of baptism and you profess in front of God's people, I confess, I believe that Jesus Christ 
is Lord and Savior. From that moment, you've begun publicly confessing on mission, and you continue that every day the rest of your life. You take the name of the triune Lord upon yourself. You have now been renamed. Your life is no longer your own. It belongs to Jesus Christ, and you do not want to take his name in vain. You take it and believe, and so you speak. No matter the affliction, we have the same spirit of faith. Thus we believe, and so we speak. And we believe and speak knowing what it says in verse 14. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Think of that glorious good news. Notice Paul's not just concerned about himself being brought into the Lord's presence, but he wants to be brought with you. In other words, the believers at Corinth who've come to Christ through his preaching, with you in the presence of Jesus, we know in the midst of speaking the gospel, in the face of great affliction, that God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with the whole believing church into his presence. Now notice what he says in verse 15. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul is suffering all this for their sake. So that grace might extend to more and more people, which will increase thanksgiving among people to the glory of God. We suffer for your sake, so that as grace extends, hear that, to more and more people. When you come to 2 Corinthians, I think, 10, Paul actually talks about the thing he'll boast in is that, that he's preached the gospel to them first, and that the thing he'll boast in is that he wants to go to lands beyond them and preach the gospel there as well. Note how Paul's ecclesiological purpose, we suffer this way in gospel ministry for your sake, for the sake of the salvation of God's elect. Note that, that's there. But then notice his confidence as well. He suffers in this way for their sake. Notice what he says. So that as grace extends to more and more people. That's a kind of a confident statement, isn't it? He doesn't say, so that if grace extends to more and people, more and more people. He says, so that as grace extends to more and more people. He's quite confident that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So I'll keep suffering for the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and I will believe that grace is going to extend to more and more people. But Paul knows that God has this surpassing power, that the word will not return void, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Thus, Paul has confidence that no matter how harsh the suffering and rejection he suffers, gospel preaching will lead to gospel advance to more and more people. Now note Paul's ultimate reason, that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, Paul wants the church to be saved and gathered. But, but listen, Paul's ultimate, ultimate reason, his ultimate desire is not man-centered. It isn't just that man might be saved. The church might be gathered. His ultimate desire is God-centered. Paul knows that while the church is a glorious end of God's work, the glory of God is the glorious end of God's work. This is what we might call the doxological purpose of missions and ministry. Doxology, doxa, meaning glory. The worship purpose of missions. John Piper, in his influential book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, a book that has its fingerprints on my life and ministry and thus on our church, said missions, he said this famous statement, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. See, the ecclesiological purpose of missions is important. We want to see the church gathered and saved, but the doxological purpose of missions is ultimate. 
We want, above all else, to see the church gathered and saved so that the Lord would be glorified. So missionary suffering is for the salvation of others, and it's for the glory of God. Third, third reason for missionary suffering. It's for the salvation of others, for the glory of God. And third, missionary suffering is for the promise of eternal reward. For eternal glory. This is glory used in a different sense than it was used in my second point. There's an eschatological, big term again, eschatos, meaning the end, last things. There's an eschatological, a heavenly, a future resurrection purpose of missionary and ministerial suffering. The missionary or minister suffers for the reward. Gospel suffering, please hear this, gospel suffering, when I say gospel suffering, what do I mean? Suffering for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel, okay, does prepare us for an eternal reward. It does. It does not earn us a reward, but it is the means through which we obtain our reward. Now, I know you're going to stop and go, what? We obtain our reward through suffering? Yes, Christians. Do you remember Jesus' statements? If anyone wants to follow after, follow after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself. The means of obtaining our reward, obtaining our reward is through suffering. For the gospel. It's not how it's merited. The way our reward is earned or merited is by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But we obtain it through suffering for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.16, look there. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now I want to note some contrast Paul is using again. Outer self wasting away. Inner self being renewed. Now, I don't love um, the way modern translations use this word that we're translating here, self, because it starts to become sounding highly psychologized. The word self here is the word for man, the outer man and the inner man. Um, I, so I just want to be clear about that. Our outer man is wasting away. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. The outer self or the outer man is speaking of the man of the old creation, body and soul. The man who's, who's created in the image of God, fallen in Adam and condemned, that belongs to the old creation. The man you were before you were born again. And I use man in a gender-inclusive way. The man you were before you were born again, that's the outer man. Now, you still retain that body and soul, Right? Though you're born again. And so you still retain, if you will, that outer man. The inner man is that new spiritual life that's been birthed in you by the Holy Spirit. You've been made new. And he says that the outer man, the old creation man, is wasting away, decaying, and dying. Isn't if you've lived for any amount of time, you can see that happening. You peak about 25 and then death begins, right? You know how that happens? Just starts coming in, right? Okay? And, and it, just, it just goes on for years and decades, right? And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, you wake up the next morning and take another gander and realize it has gotten worse. You can see the outer man decaying, wasting away, and dying. This is particularly true in the midst of intense affliction and suffering and persecution. You can literally see Paul's outer man dying and wasting away. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Keep your hands there in 2 Corinthians 4. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. He's contrasting himself with the super apostles who were actually quite prosperous, drawing big crowds, big paychecks, and uh, fairly comfortable, well-loved men. And he's contrasting himself with them. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far, listen to his 
description, verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Remember, Christ gets stripped and whipped. 39 lashes, the 40 less one. Paul endured that five times. Five times. Three times, verse 25, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. He's not talking about smoking marijuana. He actually had huge rocks thrown on him in an attempt to kill him. Three times, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea. Imagine having that happen once in your life. You're adrift at sea with, on some, for a couple days. Three times to be in a shipwreck. Verse 26, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people. That's meaning the ethnic Jews. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Those would be those professing to be Christians that were not, who were persecuting him. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. So he had problems sleeping. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Listen, you could see Paul's suffering and wasting away in his body, just right in front of you. He's bearing in his body the sufferings of Christ as he suffers and proclaiming the gospel. But note the contrast he uses that while the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. That's the new man in Christ. This is Paul as a new creation by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. Right? Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And Paul's saying that he's being renewed. He's being daily transformed into the image of Christ. Look up at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, right before verse, uh, chapter 4. And we all, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He is being daily transformed into the image of Christ. He is daily being given comfortable supplies of the Holy Spirit to endure, if you will. The renewal here is not some new, please hear this, is not some new positive attitude. It isn't that Paul read Norman Vincent Peale's latest book. He's dead, so his latest book is old, but you get my point. He didn't become a positive-thinking guy, always looking on the bright side of life. Some of you know the movie reference. The renewal is his growth in Christ-likeness by the Lord, who is the Spirit. He is strengthened in his eternal hope, even as his earthly hopes are dashed against the rocks of affliction. He continues to grow in his trust in the Lord in the midst of suffering. Thus he can say, so we do not lose heart. See, he had already said that above in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. We do not lose heart, right? Because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We don't lose heart because we know God is the one who's the powerful, effectual agent at work in saving people. So we don't lose heart. We also don't lose heart in the midst of suffering, for we know God is at work in us. We know what our eternity holds. He did not lose heart because his ministry is by the mercy and power of God. He did not lose heart because the Lord continued to sustain him in his faith, even when he outwardly felt he couldn't take another step. He could sing with the psalmist in Psalm 68, 19, Blessed be the Lord, who daily, daily bears us up. 
just sing that? Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Now look at 2 Corinthians 4.17, if you will. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice the contrasting words again. Light and momentary affliction versus eternal weight of glory. Paul is saying his suffering is light. It's light. It doesn't have any weight. It's of real, no real account compared to the weightiness of glory. His suffering is momentary. In other words, it's, it's really short-lived compared to the eternality of glory. His intense persecution, his affliction, his suffering, he calls light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Think about that. Shipwrecked three times. At sea adrift a day and a night. Five times received 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods. Beatings too innumerable to mention. Imprisonments too innumerable to mention. Hungry, thirsty, exposed to the cold and the elements with no way to warm himself. Abandoned, persecuted, spoken horribly about even by professing Christians. Light momentary affliction. How many of you guys would say that? My affliction is light and momentary. How can he say that? How can he call that light and momentary affliction? Because he knows his sufferings are preparing him for glory that is eternally weighty. And when his current sufferings are compared to the standard of eternal glory, his current sufferings are really nothing. Really nothing. Please don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that he faces his suffering with some kind of stoic indifference. No big deal. It's not hard. He actually says, I despaired of life itself. That doesn't sound like a guy who says this isn't hard. He's not saying he doesn't feel the full weight of his suffering. Further, he recognizes that his suffering is greater than the sufferings of many others. He's not saying, hey, all our sufferings basically. We all suffer for the Lord. It's basically the same, right? He's not. He's saying, actually, I suffered way more than any of you. That's true for our missionaries overseas. I mentioned that at the beginning. Their suffering in gospel ministry will often be more acute and intense than ours. They're going to close countries. Paul's not saying, I just stick my head in the sand and pretend this is not hard that I've got it no worse than anyone else, and that all is just really bright and cheery. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, this is nothing. It has no weight at all. It's light and momentary. So Paul's looking forward to the eternal weight of glory. Look at verse 18. As we look, Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, note the contrasting pairs. Listen to how Paul disciplined his own thinking. Please pay attention to this. Paul is exercising and showing you the exercise of a spiritual discipline here. He's disciplining his own mind. Listen to it. He daily exercises his mind in the midst of suffering and persecution and gospel ministry. How does he do it? He tells you something he avoids thinking about, and he tells you something he commits to thinking about. So he says, first he tells you what he avoids dwelling upon and staring at. We, as we look not, as we look not, we do not look at, we do not dwell upon, we do not think upon, as we look not to the things that are seen, these earthly realities but to the things that are unseen. So he says, we do not look to the things that are seen. And what does he instead daily dwell upon? What does he discipline his mind to think upon and look upon and dwell upon? But to the things that are unseen. 
He thinks upon and dwells upon not the harsh reality of his sufferings that cause him to despair of even life itself. He thinks upon and dwells upon the eternal weight of glory. His eyes are set on things above where Christ is seated. His eyes are not set on here on earth. In fact, he is deeply heavenly minded. Paul is so heavenly minded that he is of much earthly good. Now, Paul doesn't look to heaven because he's some kind of positive thinking, optimistic idealist. He looks to heaven because he's a realist. Did you hear that? Because the realist, look at verse 18 again. For the things, the second phrase, the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. They're changeable. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Look, this is what he's saying. Listen, this body of mine that I'm suffering in is temporary. It's a mist, a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, it's coming to an end. My wife, my children, my health, my reputation, my comfort, all temporary. So if my practice each day is to set my mind upon this, to dwell upon these temporary things, then I am actually being wildly unrealistic. But if my practice each day is to recognize how short-lived and temporary these things are, while I set my eyes upon and dwell upon eternal glory with the Lord, then I'm being a realist. And only then am I being a realist. I'm seeing things finally as they truly are. And Paul's saying, my life is wasting away. It's wasting away, but by the gracious help of the Holy Spirit, supplied by the resurrected Christ, with my eyes set upon my eternal reward with him, I can endure all of this for your salvation and God's glory. This is how a missionary suffers for the gospel. And it is only those missionaries and ministers who by the grace of God and only those church members who by the grace of God maintain this eternal perspective, it's only them who, it's only they who, who will endure. The rest will be in love with this present world and will fall away. So let me give you five quick implications. As I've gone late, let me make them quick. Um, first, eschatology matters. For the hope of missionaries. You say, what? Eschatology matters. This is a bizarre statement. The last things and the end things matter for the hope of missionaries. Last things matter is what I'm saying. If we do not believe in the return of Christ, in the literal resurrection of the dead, in eternal rewards and punishments, then we have lost the blessed hope of the Christian life and the motivation for mission. As Christians, we must embrace that we are sojourners here. The resurrection, the new heavens and new earth are what really matter in our lives, and we must keep our eyes on that prize. So we die to our dreams and our passions and the world's call to live for self-fulfillment. All of that, listen, all of that. And folks, I had to finally, I, I, I repeatedly get off Facebook, and I'm just gone off of it now because... I can't stand the rubbish I see with regard to how we as people, and myself included, are tempted to dwell on these things. And it shows up in what we're reflecting on all day long and what we're liking and what we're posting and what we're looking at. We're just constantly obsessed with our own dreams and passions and self-fulfillment. And it's rubbish in the light of what's to come. Rubbish. Eschatology matters both for our assurance of reward and for our soberness regarding hell and the eternal outcome of sinners apart from Christ. Which leads to my second implication. Eschatology matters for the hope of nations. In other words, eschatology not only matters for the hope of the missionary, eschatology matters for the hope of the nations. If we do not believe hell is real, 
that sin and judgment are the lot of every man, then we will not go to the field nor stay in the field. We will not venture to open our mouth to our neighbor or coworker or family or friend for, for fear that they may say something bad about us because our lives are set here. We're not thinking about their eternity in hell. We just care about ourselves and now, the here and now, but with regard to us. William Carey said it this way, in order to be prepared for our great and solemn work, it is absolutely necessary that we set an infinite value upon immortal souls, that we often endeavor to affect our minds with a dreadful loss sustained by an unconverted soul launched into eternity. It becomes us to fix in our minds the awful doctrine of eternal punishment and to realize frequently the inconceivably awful condition of this vast country, in his case, India, lying in the arms of the wicked one. If we have not this awful sense of the value of souls, it is impossible that we can feel a right in any other part of our work. And in this case, it had been better for us to have been in any other situation rather than in that of a missionary. Oh, may our hearts bleed over these poor idolaters and may their case lie with continued weight on our minds. Third, we should not be hasty in sending folks to the mission field. Third implication, don't be hasty in sending folks to the mission field. I'll touch on this again more next week, but as urgent as the need is, we should not be hasty in sending folks to the field. Paul never said, be hasty in laying on of hands. James never said, most of you should be teachers, my brothers. Never. Paul said, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. James said, not many of you should be teachers. We need to test and qualify and send mature folks. Our urgency to see the nation saved means that we pray for and seek out godly, mature, qualified, and trained people. Our urgency should not lead us to sending as many folks as is possible. If our urgency leads us to hastily sending people who are untrained, immature, and not properly tested, we will see them come home quickly, and we will demonstrate that our urgency was never really biblically informed. Fourth, we should not be hasty in rescuing suffering missionaries. Hear Hear that? We shouldn't be hasty in sending them, and we shouldn't be hasty in bringing them home. We should not be hasty in rescuing suffering missionaries. We should be slow to send and slow to bring them home. Our missionaries will suffer. People we love, you know and love, will suffer. We should not easily bring folks home who are suffering so they might spend the rest of their lives licking their wounds. It seems that in many cases we've reached the point where it's, it's questionable to us to leave missionaries in the field if they're suffering. I'm concerned that we tend to believe something is psychologically wrong with missionaries who stay the course in the midst of great suffering and loss. Like, you know, if they're functioning in the midst of all that suffering, then, they're, then they aren't dealing properly with grief, and it's all going to come crashing down because they'll never self-actualize in the way that they ought to. That's rubbish. If the church, the early church took that attitude with Paul, the gospel would never have reached us. You understand that? Never. I'm not saying suffering missionaries should never come home. I'm not saying they should never come home. I'm saying we need to avoid the temptation to rescue them. We can't make perfect wisdom calls on the front end of sending, nor can we make perfect wisdom calls on the back end of bringing them home, but we need to think carefully and slowly about that, both in sending and in bringing them home. Fifth, Suffering and weakness are not liabilities to missions, but the strength of missions. Did you hear that? I've been at more than one ministry event where the speakers are addressing how your family can thrive in ministries, or in ministry or in missions. There's a subtle American prosperity gospel that affects us all. We all believe we need to be fulfilled and thriving, but you, you will... You will um, You will look in vain and search in vain if you look for that command in Scripture. Thrive. Be fulfilled. Good luck finding it. The Bible never calls us to such. Rather, the Bible calls us to forfeit our lives and to faithfully endure. 
It never says that when you're thriving in ministry, then you're strong. In fact, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. If anything, we only thrive in as much as our weakness and suffering make us dependent upon the grace of God. So may we as a church be faithful to suffer in gospel mission for the sake of the salvation of others and the glory of God as we seek the eternal reward. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your son would be exalted in our church. That we would give thanks for his life and death and resurrection. That we would look to the eternal reward. Knowing that the eternal weight of glory far exceeds surpasses, really makes of no account this light momentary affliction. May we be faithful in opening our mouths about Jesus for the salvation of others, for the glory of God. And Father, may we be faithful in how we send missionaries and support them and when we call them home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.